We are in a series uh, called Kings, and I hope that at at least one of the things that you have experienced in this series is that uh, the Bible is not a boring book. Uh, It is full of, uh, as I like to say in the Old Testament, especially car chases and shootouts. There's all kinds of craziness. Uh, One of the things I've discovered as I have studied the scriptures for a few years now the Bible, the more that I read the Bible, the more I get into kind of the world of the Bible, the weirder it is, the stranger it seems to me. Uh, we are separated from the stories that we're going to read this morning, not just by like 3,000 years, but by culture. Last Sunday, I threw up a couple of, of gifts from uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I didn't even mention them. I just put them up there. And many of you laughed. I'd say around half of you at least had an idea of what the story was without me ever referencing it because we shared that story. And that's the way cultures are. Stories that are shared, that shape you, that create the way you see the world. We don't really share that with the people of the Bible. Uh, we're, we're distant from them. And so sometimes the Bible seems strange, sometimes the Bible seems very strange, and sometimes this leads to very awkward situations like we're in today. And if there's one thing that you've probably learned about me, it's that I'm not afraid of awkward conversations. So let's just do it. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is uh, where we're going to start this morning. It's very important to start here because if we don't have Deuteronomy chapter 7 in our minds, 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we'll be spending the the bulk of our story time this morning, uh, won't make any sense. So please find Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're using the Pew Bible as I am, it is page uh, 151, second column at the bottom of the page there. Uh, I'll begin to read and then just catch up as you can. Uh, God is speaking to the Israelites. This This is final instructions before they enter into the promised land. And God says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, When the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must, so here's the command, you must devote them to complete destruction. The word here is harem, and it means uh, literally to ban something. You you ban something. You you can't participate in it, can't have anything to do with it. But here it means literally to ban to such an extent that you destroy everything. Everything from the cat to the king, it all goes away. And so he gives instructions not to covenant, not to have mercy, not to intermarry, and not only to destroy all of the people that you will uh, be sent to, but you will also destroy all of the idols, all of their gods. Now that strikes us as embarrassing. How can we talk about a God of love? How can we talk about a God of mercy? How can we talk about God at all? In the modern world, with our modern sensibilities, and have this in the Bible, surely we have to find a way around it. And that's what we usually do. We either pretend like it didn't happen, or just sort of like, "Eh, these aren't the droids you're looking for, move along, move along. Or we come up with some sort of progressive way of explaining it away, which is not fair to the Bible, and isn't fair to the text, and isn't, in fact, true 
Scripture is the word of God. And so all of it is instructive for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that you and I can be equipped to do the things that are right, even places that strike us strangely. One of the things that we need to do then when we run into a text like this and we're like, wow, that seems harsh. We need to remember that we are distant from them by time and language and space and we need to pick ourselves up out of 21st century America and move ourselves back and remember what God is doing here. Because God is doing something very important He is doing three things, and they happen to all begin with P's, which is handy. He is trying to create or pulling forth a particular people that he is going to place in a particular place for a particular purpose of bearing witness and showing light to the world. Now, we can do this pretty quickly with our map. This is us. This is Israel. God has chosen Israel to be the light to all of the nations around them, but in order to do this, He must first put them in the land. He must put them in the land. And we have this idea sometimes about the Old Testament, um, or I think people who maybe don't read their Bible have this idea about the Old Testament, that it is very akin to America and Canada. Like, we never hurt those poor Canadians, and they would never invade us. We just have this sort of peace-loving. But is that what we've experienced so far as we've read the Bible over the past few weeks? No, the Philistines have said what? Let's take over that spot. And they just come in, right? And they kill and they destroy and there's this warlike nature that is constant throughout all of these people groups. And so God is calling his people to a particular place and he says, I want you to clear that place out and defend that place. That is your place. But you know what? You are to go no further. They aren't to build an empire. They aren't to become the next Babylon eating up more and more and more of the world. Babylon, if you remember, starts over here and just begins to eat up everything. This is how empires work. God is not making an empire. He is making a particular people who will be landlocked inside of this chunk right here and that they will then bear light to all of the nations. This is God's uh, uh, instruction to them. Furthermore, when they are called to go to war, we see this ban enacted for what other purpose? Not just to protect them from, whole, from intermingling and, and becoming unholy, but from profit. What happened when the Philistines took over last week? Do you remember? Do you remember? What happened? They taxed them to death, right? They took their land, they took their children, they took their flocks, and then they taxed them. Because what? War is profitable. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. And that's what they're doing. But God says, when you go to war, if I command you, and God, if you read your Testament, Old Testament carefully, very rarely ever commands them directly to go to war. But if I command you to go to war and to fight, you will not benefit from it. This is not how you will increase your land. This is not how you will increase your wealth. That is not the way that you are to live your life. And so God puts very rigid, so as we read this text, we're sort of struck by it, and it might offend some of our sensibilities, but what we should see inside of it is that God is putting very rigid rules around any fighting, any war that is given to them, or that he commands them to do. Now keep this kind of as the context in the back of your mind as we move forward to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 237, second column. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, Saul has, uh, 
has begun to very successfully defend and begin to push out the Canaanites and some of the other ones that we had just read about. He's defeated the Ammonites and he's pushed them this way. Uh, he's defeated the Philistines, he's pushing them this way. And today we're going to talk about the Amalekites down there. Now the Lord um, comes to Samuel to deliver a message to Saul. Remember Samuel is the, the high priest. And he comes and he speaks to to Saul, and he says, The Lord sent me, this is verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel, so then, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Sort of like a nice, like, early on guilt trip before I give you a command. Remember that, like, we put you here. Um, and so listen to what, you, to what he says to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way as they came up out of Egypt. Now go then and strike Amalek and devote, again, that same word to destruction, that this, this bond, this haram, uh, destroy them completely. All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. From cat to king, they're all to be destroyed. Again, this strikes our sensibilities. What is God doing here? Why would God do this? What about the God of love and the God of grace and, the, and, and, and all of these kinds of things? What, what, what's happening here? Something that we have forgotten to our detriment. Something that we have forgotten to our detriment. First, again, keeping in mind, they are not going to profit from this. That's what he lays out there. You're not going to, to get anything out of this. I am commanding you and I am sending you. Why? Because God is bringing judgment upon the Amalekites. Because God is a God who does not acquit sins without judgment. And we've forgotten this to our detriment God, we read this throughout the prophets. Open up your Bible and just read the prophets. Read God's word to, to Judah. Read God's word to Ammon. Read Obadiah and God's word to Edom. Read the first few chapters of Amos where God speaks to this nation and this nation and this nation. And each one of those in increasing, terrifyingly serious judgments that God is going to bring about on them. Remember, even Genesis chapter 15, where God comes to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation, but I'm going to put you in slavery for 400 years. Why? Why would you do that to your chosen people? The people that you're going, why don't you just lead them right into the promised land right now? God says, because the sin of the people who live in that land has not yet exceeded my tolerance. But when it does, I am going to send you into the land and you will be the hand of my judgment against them and you will destroy them utterly. We have created for ourselves a God that is not biblical. If we have in our mind a God who does not judge nations. And when God brings his judgment upon nations, upon people, and upon individuals, it is fearsome, and it is terrifying, and there is no other way around it if you want to treat the Bible on its own terms. And it should, in some ways, create in us a deep sense of fear. 
We should stand before this and say, there is a holy God who is calling us to the same level of holiness that he is in. And as we continue to increase our sins, the rage of God against us and our sinfulness is exceeding and growing and growing and growing to the point of which one day God will come and God will judge. And you don't want to be in that place. And so we should flee to God. We should run to God. Saul should see this commandment that he has been given and he should be struck with fear because at any moment God could say to these, to Saul and to his chosen people who, who are going to continue to walk in sin, if you continue to walk in sin, I'll bring that judgment against you. Saul's orders are laid out clearly. There's no uh, ambiguity there. There's no mystery there. And Saul musters his people. He brings them together. 200,000 men he brings down to this probably, where am I at? Where am I at? There I am. Here it is. Probably to this area right here. Uh, we're not exactly sure where, where uh, Tulane is, but probably there. And he begins to move his army south, and he runs into the Kenites here. And if you remember from Exodus chapter 18, the Kenites are related to Jethro. Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses. You might have heard of Moses. He's kind of the big, important dude in the Bible. And uh, they say to the Kenites, hey, listen, bro, back up. We're going after the Amalekites. And the Kenites are very smart, and they say, okay, we're out of the way. And so they push down into the Amalekite territory, and we read in this story that they do what God commands them. They uh, uh, begin here around the edge, which is uh, uh, Havila, I believe. Yes, Havila, uh, which we think is probably right here. It's just kind of a wilderness region. And they push them all the way across to probably uh, just a little bit less than the baptistry. Um, because this is Egypt right here. I don't know if you knew that, but that's Egypt. To this wilderness of Shur that is right against the border of Egypt. So we're talking about a month, weeks at least, but probably a month-long campaign as they push the Amalekites all the way across this territory and, and, and destroy everything as God has commanded them, except for, except for verse 9. If you look at your scriptures there in verse 9, we read something that should make our hearts and stomachs sink. But Saul... And the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. And they would not utterly destroy them. Again, that very word, that, that ban word, right? They didn't devote it completely to destruction. Uh, but all that was despised and worthless, they did devote to destruction. And so what is God's response to this? God's response to this, we read in verse 10, is this. The word of the Lord then came to Samuel and he says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not kept or practiced my commandments. Now, we shouldn't read this regret as though it's divine hand-wringing, like God's like, oh, shucks, I can't believe this happened. Uh, but rather as God's firm rejection of Saul from this point on forevermore. Now comes the interesting part. Samuel's reaction. Because Samuel gets mad says here literally that he burns. He burns and he cries out to God all night long. Samuel loves Saul. 
has a relationship with Saul, has, 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 has the one that God called to anoint Saul, has walked with Saul in many ways. And he has this, I, you know, kind of think of it as maybe like a father-son kind of experience with him as Samuel is very aged and Saul is probably rather young. And they've had this experience of walking together and Samuel is brokenhearted that God has now decided, that's it. I am done with Saul. Now the question that is so interesting and applicable to us today is this. Which relationship will Samuel choose to preserve? Because what we have experienced in modern Christianity is that we value relationships over religion. This is even like a slogan people will start throwing around, which isn't a meaningless slogan. It's stupid, and please don't say it. Um, We are a religion. It's just a fact. But uh, the the idea of using the word relationship, I think, has in some ways maybe led us to a false understanding. Because we have relationships with friends, don't we? And we just agree to disagree. You have a friend that's an atheist or or a Muslim or or somebody who's like completely just doesn't even care about God. And yet you play video games together. uh, You know, you you head to the Y together. Although, you know, I'm not calling you in. You're a good guy. It's okay. Uh, we, we have these relationships and we just agree to disagree. Or my deepest relationship, that with my, with my wife, uh, who often just, don't ask her how many things she has to put up with. She just sort of, you know, puts up with it because we have a relationship together. And we take this and we map this on top of the word God. And we say, I have a relationship with God. Well, in all of my other relationships, we sort of have a live and let live kind of thing. You know, I like a lot of things about you, but I don't like everything about you. I agree with a lot of things that you say, but I don't agree with everything that you say. And so, you know, God's like that too. We're just going to have a, a relationship where we live and let live. And yet the Bible says from beginning to end, that is false wrong you have a relationship with god and one in which he cares very much for you but one where a king cares for his servant his subject and he commands and we obey or he commands and we disobey so Saul has a choice in that morning, and he has to decide, which relationship will I preserve? And I, I hear you thinking, well, that's not Jesus. Like, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Because Jesus is so much different than the, than the God of the Old Testament, right? I wanted a wrong there. You, you go feel free to you feel free to call out heresy when you hear it, you know that No, that is wrong. Jesus is Yahweh in flesh. He is the God of the Old Testament walking our streets, speaking to us, showing us by example, and commanding us. Jesus shows up and he says, listen, uh, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring a sword. Why? There's going to be a division that's driven right through the center of the family. And you have to understand that family, uh, we live in a, in a like post-divorce like, world where family kind of is, is really fluid. Don't even get me started on how my family's put together. Like I, We don't have that kind of time. Families are, are very broken now, but in those days you had a tightness that depended, you depended on one another, not just because you loved one another, had some sort of like you know, sentimentality with one another, but because you depended on one another for food. 
You depended on one another for, for living together and living spaces. And God says, or Je- God and Jesus say, in this moment, I have come to divide a father and his son, a daughter and a mother. The daughter-in-law that's brought in by the son who lives in a room off the house of the parents. I, I'm, I'm dividing that family right there. A mother-in-law with her, with her daughter-in-law and a person's enemies are going to be their own house. Why? Because if you are going to follow me, you better take up your cross and come along. Because I command. I command. And you obey. And if you love we could say anything, but here he says specifically families. If you love something more than me, you aren't worthy of me. You don't belong. And so as godlessness increases in America, and I, I don't really, I only partially lament this because of what I see is just the window dressings of cultural Christianity coming down, and that's okay. But what we are going to experience, those of you here who are believers, What you are going to experience in increasing pressure is exactly what we see here between Samuel and God and Saul. What relationship will you preserve? Whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side or are you on your children's side? Are you on the Lord's side or are you on your friend's side? Are you on the Lord's side or on your spouse's side? Side, Are you on the Lord's side or on your neighbor's side? And the more that pressure intensifies, the more it will cost you. And so when Joshua says to Israel at the end of the book of Joshua, where God takes them through and they, they do all the stuff that we read there and they conquered the land and God gives them all these miracles. He makes the sun stand still in the sky. He gives them, allows them to defeat these, these nations which are numerous and more powerful than them. And Joshua says, okay, listen, look at all that God has done for you. You need to make a choice now. Who will you serve? And you can't back out of this. Like You choose now. There's no going back. The day of redemption stands before you. And along with redemption comes allegiance. We forget that. What is happening in the New Testament is what is happening in the Old Testament. And Saul, or Samuel, comes to Saul as we read in the morning. And it's very interesting in verse 13, Saul responds immediately to him. And he says, blessed be you to the Lord. So um, you know, he's, giving, he's giving Samuel a blessing. Blessing to you. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now what's troubling about this to me is it doesn't seem like Saul is you know, presenting any guile. It's not like he's trying to trick Samuel. He really thinks he has fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. Has he done it? No, right? Everyone knows you haven't done it. Like God, it's, it's sort of like Emery. We have a messy living room. Go pick up your toys. She's gone for a minute. She comes back. Can I be done now? Did you pick up your toys? Yes. I look in the living room. No, you didn't, right? You picked up some of the toys, yes, but when I, I, I said like all, pick up, pick up your toys. And she's like, oh, right? And she's like, oh, just stomps off. Like I've asked you to, part the Red Sea or something. Every parent knows this, and even if you're not a parent, you understand this. Almost done is not done, right? Almost obeyed, when we talk about God, is not obeyed. 
And God lays this before Saul. He doesn't trick, God is never going to try to trick you. It's like he's trying to fool you. Like, aha, there's some commandment that I never told you about, and now I'm going to stick you with it. God lays it out so you can obey. Because what does God want for you? He wants life for you. He wants life for me. But life comes through allegiance to him. Samuel responds to Saul with the, like, the most parent answer I've ever read in all of the Bible. Then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And what is the lowing of cattle that I listen to? If you did what God said, why did I have to pass like four herds of cattle when I walked up here? Like, what do you mean you obeyed the Lord? And you gotta love, you gotta love sort of the caught red-handedness of Saul in this moment in verses 20 and 21. And Saul said to the Lord, well, well I, I, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I, I, I did, I went on the mission that the Lord sent me to and I brought Egeg, the king of the Amalekites, back. But I, I devoted the rest of it to destruction. But the people, oh, those people, my friends did it. <laughs> took the spoil, they took the sheep, they took the oxen, the best of the things, to, to, to be devoted to destruction. Why? To sacrifice. Like, oh, this was about God the whole time. This was all about God the whole time. Now, I don't know about you, but I doubt that severely. I doubt very much that the king didn't have a hand in it. I doubt very much that it was all about this you know, sacrifice to God. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 21. To who? To the Lord, your God. Not our God, not my God. Your God. <laughs> He tries to use religion to sort of uh, cover up his religiosity to cover up the commands of God. Well, I did almost all that you commanded, but I, I mean, it's so much better to have the king with us and to have a, a little bit to sacrifice to the Lord. And, and anytime you sort of imagine that, well, God commands, but I have a better idea than God, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And that's what's going on here. We do this. We do this. Saul, or Samuel, Samuel just says, stop. Stop. I, I, I don't want to hear this anymore. And he lays it out very plainly for him in a, in a word that should strike fear into our hearts. Has the Lord, he says in verse 22, Great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Let's, let's put it in our sort of day. Does the Lord delight in all of uh, your Christian radio car singing? Does the Lord delight in all of the church that you show up to? Does the Lord delight in all the times you volunteered for something? Does the Lord delight in how many times you've posted on Facebook about refugees or against refugees or whatever? Does the Lord delight in all of the, the, the times that, that you've helped your neighbors out? Does the Lord delight in, 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 in how nice you are to the people around you? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he delights in you obeying him. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Now, some of the things I mentioned are included in obedience. But if we think we can do some and not all, we've missed it. For rebellion, he says in verse 23, is as the sin of divination. So, 
thinking that you can control God. And presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry. If you think you know better than God as he commands you, you are putting yourself in a position higher than God. That is, by definition, idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, I'm not going to continue to read the story. Uh, It does go on, and I want to encourage you um, in your time of family worship this week, uh, when you're with your family or maybe by yourself in maybe a personal prayer time, uh, to to continue to read the story as it it goes on. And next week, we'll get into chapter 16. Um, But this is the moment where Saul is ripped away, ripped away from the good things that God has laid before him and will watch him steadily decline from this point. And one of the things that is most infuriating to me um, uh, is how, how we twist the Bible uh, to make ourselves not wrestle with the strangeness of the Bible. How, how we twist the Bible, we explain it away, we, we make room for our, our, our ideas to try to, to, try to say, well, the, there's, there's this text, but there's this text. Well, there's Jesus now, and so the, this kind of the harshness of the Old Testament has gone away. No, God is king. Genesis to Revelation, that's the message. God is king. And the plea from Genesis to Revelation is that you hear that message, God is king, and that you accept that message, God is king, and you live your life in light of that message, God is king. But because of the mean lords that we have today, I need to give you some New Testament texts. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. They are synonymous. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is, of course, Jesus capstoning his, uh, his famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, and there are going to be people who say, like, didn't we do, like, really cool stuff? I cast out demons, like, prophesy, do all kinds of things. And he says, no, you, you didn't keep my commandments because to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You've been set before you a great inheritance, a promise that through Jesus you might have a place in the kingdom of God. And what does Paul say here? The unrighteous don't inherit it. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been changed. So you shouldn't live that way anymore. Galatians six, nineteen. That's not right. Five, nineteen. Um, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not... Yep. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, uh, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not 
inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And then 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I like that text a lot uh, because it uses that word exile, which should be so familiar to us and sitting in the back of our minds every time we think about the Old Testament as the people of God who who are scattered then through the world. You might think of the stories of Daniel, or stories of, uh, uh, of Ezra and things like that. Um, the, these, these people who don't quite belong. Israel from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God is constantly giving them laws that point them out as different, that make them stand out and, and they look They look utterly different than anyone around you. And Peter uses this exilic mentality and applies it to the church today. He says, listen, you live now not only in landlocked Israel, but you live just scattered through the nations. And and everyone around you on your block is very likely not plugged into church and very likely not committed to Christ, very likely not giving him allegiance or obeying his commandment, which makes it ten times harder for you to stay the course. And if at any point in time you forget this, you say, oh, I'm not in exile, I belong, you will get lost. And you have to remember this. You don't belong here. Conduct yourselves with fear because of this. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing what? Knowing that you were ransomed Those of you who are believers here today, I hope you hear this. If you're not a believer here today, I hope you hear this this call to to the kingship of Jesus Christ and that you throw yourself at his feet and accept the full and unconditional pardon that God has for those who place their faith in him. But if you're a believer here today, you were ransomed. You were bought. You were saved. You You were bought out of this Futility that you inherited from your fathers, from your people around you, from American culture. Ransomed from this, not with perishable things like silver or gold. God didn't give something like a gold brick or a million dollars to save you. He used something that is more costly and precious than anything that has ever existed the precious blood of Jesus who like a lamb without spot without blemish or spot gave his life that you might be the holy people of God let us then as we come to a conclusion give our full allegiance and trust to the only one worthy of it the only one who deserves it 
Let us recall and remember that we are exiles and strangers and that we should follow in the way of Jesus lest we face being disinherited as Saul was. And let us be as Samuel who stands up and says, I know that this is going to cut me right to the quick, but I am on the Lord's side, always on the Lord's side, ever on the Lord's side, and nothing will ever turn me back. May we be men and women of conviction.